Welcome to the Turkey Hunter Podcast with me, your host, Andy Galliano. In this podcast, I share with turkey hunters just like you how to have more turkeys on your hunting property and how to have more successful turkey hunts. I teach you how to do this with tips and interviews with turkey hunting pros, wildlife management tips, and entertaining turkey hunting stories. Tune in weekly as I share proven and simple strategies to help you have more success this turkey season. Make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe to receive free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews. Also, please visit and like my Facebook fan page. Go to Facebook and search I Am Turkey Hunting. And also feel free to post your turkey hunting photos from this past season and let us know where and when you killed your bird. For all of you Twitter users out there, please follow me on Twitter where my handle is at turkeyhitman, and I will be sure to follow you back. And now, for this week's show. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast. You are listening to episode number 151, How a Wild Turkey Hen Selects a Mate, with Dr. Richard Buckholz. And I am your host, and the guy who had... Just an amazing day, Saturday. And I'll tell you a little bit more about my Saturday in just a moment. But right this very second, we are 182 days. Yes, that's just over six months. 182 days, 11 hours, 16 minutes, and 57 seconds away from opening day of spring turkey season in Alabama. So I've got a long interview for you guys today, so I'm going to jump on into this story that I promised I would tell you, which is the story of my Saturday, and then we're going to get right into the interview. So I told you guys last week that the upcoming Saturday, which today is this past Saturday, was opening day of dove season for the North Alabama zone. And that I was going on a dove hunt with my dad and several other people. And this is a hunt that we went on last year. And they had several doves last year, but it's a big ordeal. And I know for so many people around the country, dove hunting is a social event. And this very much is a social event. This is a corporate dove hunt, and it's at a very nice outfitter operation about 30 minutes outside of Birmingham. The place has a very beautiful lodge. They serve barbecue. They have cold adult beverages for those who are not going to hunt, who would rather sit around and watch football on one of the many TVs around this lodge for the afternoon. And they have someone there who's picking the guitar and singing some tunes as well. It is a great networking opportunity. It's a great place for fellowship. It's a great place to shoot doves. And we got all of that in on Saturday. So as you guys know, this past weekend, the arrival of Hurricane Irma was much anticipated. And the company that was putting on the dove hunt actually bought a gun to give away before the dove hunt. And because of the hurricane, they decided that they would... Instead of giving the gun away, they would raffle the gun, and all monies raised in the raffle would go to hurricane relief, whether it was Hurricane Irma or Hurricane Harvey or both. It doesn't matter. And at the time, they were not sure of. So my dad and I each bought two tickets to this raffle. Shortly before the dove hunt started, the president of the company that was putting on the dove hunt drew the number of the lucky winner out of the hat. And yours truly won a beautiful, I mean, one of the prettiest pieces of wood that I've seen on a shotgun. A beautiful Remington 1100 Sporting 20 with Briley interchangeable chokes, a 28-inch barrel, and it is just a sweet shooting little gun. So I was fired up about winning a $900 shotgun. So that made my Saturday a pretty good day. But on top of that, we left the lodge, went into the dove field, and my dad and I both killed several doves. We had a great afternoon of shooting. It was a lot of fun. The wind was blowing pretty strongly. 
because of Hurricane Irma down just south of Florida. And the birds were hauling. I mean to tell you, they were moving quickly. So I'm going to tell you guys, I don't claim to be a great wing shot. I'm a decent wing shot. But I'm going to go ahead and tell you that I got asked several times Saturday how many doves I killed. And my answer to that question is this. I shot four and a half boxes of shells. See, I'm a firm believer in that the fun in hunting doves is shooting. And I got to shoot a lot. And I killed my limit of doves. And there's a lot of people out there that say, you killed 15 doves and shot 112 or 115 shots. Yeah, I did. And I'm proud of it. So we had a great time Saturday on that hunt, but that wasn't everything. That was not all of it. In addition to winning the shotgun and killing a limit of doves and enjoying a great afternoon with my dad, who had a fantastic time as well, my football team won their game. The Tigers lost. The Irish lost. The Buckeyes lost. And it was just a good day all around. And by the way, if you're a fan of one of the teams that lost on Saturday that I mentioned, don't send me a hate email or a hate tweet or a hate post on Facebook because the truth of the matter is that if every team other than my team could lose every single week, then I would be perfectly happy. And I'm sure you feel the same way about your team winning their game every week and the rest of the teams in the country losing their game as well. So just because I might have picked on your team just a minute ago, doesn't mean I don't love you. I just think you might be a little misguided. <laughs> and I know you Buckeyes fans are passionate about your football. And rightly so. You've got a great football team and a great football coach up there. So you should be passionate about it. And I'm just joking around. It's a football game. It's a game, period. End of discussion. We're moving on into today's show. And so today's show is a good one where we're going to talk some science and we're going to talk some biology. And I always enjoy these shows because I just truly can't learn enough about wild turkeys. Whether what I learn helps me in the spring woods or not, I just like knowing everything that I can know about wild turkeys. And I've got a guy on the show today who knows a heck of a lot more about wild turkeys than I do because he studies them all the time. And that guy is Dr. Richard Buckholz. And Dr. Buckholz is at Ole Miss. He is in the biology department there and has done numerous studies on wild turkeys. We're going to jump right into the interview with Dr. Buckholz. So I want you guys to listen in closely and see if you can pick up on a thing or two that might help you out this spring. And I'll see you guys on the other side. Hey everybody, I am excited to tell you today that I have on the line with me Dr. Richard Buckholz with the biology department at Ole Miss, University of Mississippi. And we are going to be talking about something that's, at least to me, is, well, and Dr. Buckholz as well, is pretty darn interesting. And that is wild turkeys and how female wild turkeys choose a mate. And we're going to talk about a couple of other things that he has discovered in some of his research studies that he has done. And so, Dr. Buckholz, how are you today and where are you? Uh, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on your show. I'm in my office on the beautiful Ole Miss campus in Oxford, Mississippi. Fantastic. Fantastic. And I know just like most professors and most researchers, you've bounced around a little bit. So you actually, if I'm not mistaken, you did your doctorate at the University of Florida. That's right. And then where did you go from there before you got to Ole Miss? So I did my master's degree and my uh, PhD at Florida, and I also did a teaching postdoc there in Gainesville. Okay. And after that, I became a, a assistant professor at what was then Northeast Louisiana University in Monroe, Louisiana. Mm -hmm. And after four years there, I came to Ole Miss, so I've been here quite a while now. Fantastic. And you've been studying wild turkeys and the the mating habits, I guess, is the, the word I'm looking for, of wild turkeys pretty much since your doctorate. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. When I was starting my doctorate, I wasn't sure 
what species I wanted to work on. I was really interested in basically why some birds are brightly colored and have sort of strange looking ornaments and other birds are so plain and drab. And so I wanted to know how that affected their survival in their reproduction. And actually studying the wild turkey wasn't my idea. My graduate advisor suggested it. And I said to her that I did not want to become the turkey guy. Hmm. And here we are all these years later, and I, I've embraced it. I'm the turkey guy. So You're the turkey guy. You've got some, some crazy person who hosts and produces a turkey hunting podcast calling you on the phone <laughs> and aggravating you to get you on to do an interview now, since you're the turkey yeah, guy. Yeah, and it's not even Thanksgiving. That's usually when uh, I'm the busiest with uh, people calling. I am sure you are. I am sure you are. Well, very good. Well, what really, I mean, I know you said you weren't that excited about wild turkey and your, your colleague there kind of talked you into it. I mean, was it the fact that there were more opportunities for you just because of where you were based that made you kind of give in and say, okay, this is not necessarily a bad thing to to do, or did you start to fall in love with them after you started studying them a little bit more? Well, at the time, I I had started working on sandhill cranes, Mm -hmm. and my advisor was pointing out that there were plenty of things that were not known about sandhills that were known about wild turkeys. And so I agreed to spend a semester studying both of them and found a population that wasn't hunted at Paynes Prairie State Preserve, which is just south of Gainesville, Florida. And the birds were used to visitors and campers, and I could follow them for uh, a couple hours at a time and observe them. And that's exactly it. I just realized, boy, these guys are great. They're fascinating. And up to then, frankly, you know, other than some fleeting glimpses, I didn't, you know, the only turkeys I'd interacted with were domestic turkeys. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I quickly learned the wild turkey is a completely different animal. Yes, they are. Plus, we can build on what is known about wild turkeys in a really effective way because of the interest of hunters and wildlife managers in turkeys. We know a lot about what they eat, what eats them, their parasites in different parts of the country, basic aspects of reproduction and survival. And so it was exciting to have that background information. But I also confirmed that there hadn't actually been many studies of just sort of basic reproductive behavior, and that has always been my interest. And, and so in a way, I was glad to discover that and try to fill in some of the questions about how they engage in, in uh, their reproductive decision-making. Yeah. I'd always heard growing up that the, and it's pretty much the same with, with the majority of the bird species that the male bird was more colorful and more attractive in order to attract a mate. And that is really what you've been studying and kind of drilling down on. So let's, I want to first dig in and and let's talk about your research and your findings that you did to wrap up your PhD at the University of Florida. Can you kind of give us a, I guess, a 10,000 foot view of your dissertation there? Yeah, it really had two major areas of focus for the turkey work in terms of reproductive behavior. One was to try to understand what female turkeys preferred in a prospective mate. And so we often think about the gobblers sort of defending groups of hens, and but what we don't consider very much is whether those hens have much of a choice in the matter, right? There's so much focus mm-hmm. on gobblers. And the other question I was interested in is, well, these features that she can look at on a male, what do those features actually say about the quality of that male as a mate? You know, in turkeys, he's not assisting raising the offspring in any way, right? He doesn't sit on the eggs. He doesn't courtship feed the female. He doesn't defend the poults. And so all she gets from him, you know, briefly are the sperm she uses to fertilize the eggs. So she Theoretically, she should try to get the best genes possible in in that mate that will uh, father her offspring. And so is there anything she can tell by looking at a male as to, you know, the quality, basically, of the genes that she would pass on to her daughters and and her sons? So those are sort of the two aspects is, is, are they choosy? What are they looking for? And then what features, what do the features of a male actually uh, reliably predict about about his quality, his dominance, his health, his longevity? Mm-hmm. So I tried to do all of this 
in the field, and it turned out that some of it was really hard to do. The matrice work was really pretty difficult to sort out for two reasons. One is my unhunted population turned out to be sort of hunted because the birds didn't stay in the preserve, right? So they, they wandered wow. widely, and so I'd catch, catch males, mark them, you know, take all the measurements and let them go. And during the breeding season, you know, if they stepped over the park boundary, often there was somebody, you know, waiting there for them to uh, harvest them. So that, in terms of doing the study, that made it really difficult. And so I ended up using the free-living wild birds, capturing them and taking all the measurements, measuring their parasite load and releasing them back on the reserve. And then doing the matroy studies actually with captive wild turkeys at a facility at the university and um, then paired those two sets of, uh, of data to see whether what females seem to be preferring in a male actually were traits that said something about uh, his quality as a mate. I guess kind of, again, the 10,000-foot view of what your findings were with this, and, you know, it's, it's interesting stuff that I guess for the majority of us, it's not something that we that we really even think about, but there are things that I think that you learned that we can benefit from. So tell us what your findings were with all that. Well, the matrix trials were really interesting. What I was able to do with the captive wild turkeys was give turkey hens a choice between two males. The males were separated, so they couldn't fight one another. And in fact, they couldn't even see each other. I didn't want them to interact. But testing one female at a time, she could observe each of these males strutting and, and displaying to her. And, of course, the female turkey shows her choice of mate by crouching down into the copulation posture. Hmm. And so in mate choice lingo, we call that soliciting the male, inviting him to copulate. And that's one of the great things about turkeys is that she shows very clearly which male she would like to mate with. And so she went to the pen of of the male and, and would crouch for him. And by comparing, by switching out the males in, in this pairing that a female had a choice of, I was able to narrow down which features of the male that I had measured previously were statistically associated with the number of, of females that preferred him. And what it really came down to is that after controlling for body size, females preferred the males that had longer snoots. And the other features didn't come up as being statistically significant, except for the width of the male's skull cap. And that is actually tightly correlated with the length of the snood. So I sort of viewed that as kind of the same, same character statistically. So okay. females did prefer the male with the longer snood. And in those live male trials, just a few millimeters of a difference seemed to shift the female's preference to a, a particular male. Now, it could be that she was looking at something that I didn't measure, right? That it wasn't snood at all, but some other thing that's correlated with the snood length. And so I also had to try to do an experiment in which I altered the snood length of males. Now, that would be really hard to do, maybe even cruel to do on a live turkey. So I ended up setting up turkey decoys of a male strutting. And actually, in those days, you couldn't buy a decoy of a male strutting. You could only get decoys, those hard plastic decoys of hens. Mm -hmm. And so I took it on as a sort of arts and crafts project. And I created from those hen decoys, strutting male decoys. And I created latex ornaments, caruncles, snoods, skullcaps for these decoys. And painted them so that at least to our eye that um, they looked like wild turkey ornaments. And then what I did was was give females a choice. Oh, I also had uh, speakers that were playing back the sound of a male strutting. And again, I gave them a choice of two males, which were these two artificial males, these decoys. And I, I gave one uh, a longer snood and more caruncles, and the other one slightly shorter snood and fewer caruncles. And the majority of the females who fell for this trickery solicited for the, the longer snooded male. Mm-hmm. And that's a way of controlling for this idea that maybe in the live male study, females were not actually looking at snood. They were looking at something else correlated with snood. So that experiment then with the decoys shows that the snood was, in fact, the feature that they were keying in on. Yeah, that's just amazing to me because to look at a wild turkey, they are one of the most beautiful birds 
in the wild, um, especially a male, a male wild turkey during the spring when he's displaying. Absolutely gorgeous. Bright red, coloration in the head, white, blue, the feathers, the iridescence in the feathers. I mean, they're just, and then when the sun hits the feathers, they're just even more beautiful. And a hen is looking, a hen's looking at the snood. And so, uh, she's probably looking at it all, but the snood is certainly important in her decision making. Yeah. So, I mean, you just said it, and I and I kind of hate to to repeat it, but size does matter. Yeah, that's the joke about this, but yeah, it does. And and small differences in size actually seem to matter. Yeah. So if a hen is looking at, and I know she's probably not just judging the snood and and the the width of his cap on his head, but that she's looking at size and display as well, because if you have, typically, if you have a dominant bird and a subordinate bird, and the dominant bird's allowing the subordinate bird to hang around, the subordinate bird's probably not displaying for that hen, because he's not going to get an opportunity to for very long, even if he does. But Well, could I follow up on that? that, Yeah, please um, do. So that's a really good point, and it's not a point that I understood when I I started the work. And I had all my males housed together in a large pen, and when I I first tried to do those those, uh, female, female choice trials, only a few of the males would display. And even though this male was put in isolation and presented to the female, he would just stand there while his neighbor behind, you know, the other side of the wall would be displaying like crazy. Mm-hmm. So um, that's not a fair comparison. Females never will crouch for a male that's not displaying. And so I started asking around to find out more about what the problem might be and exactly what you said. In the group pen, there's a lot of dominance interactions and there's uh, reproductive or behavioral suppression by the dominant males. And so I actually had to abandon the trials that year, rehouse the males individually so that they all thought they were pretty tough and pretty beautiful. And when they don't have someone else suppressing them, then they all typically will display when, when a, a female is presented to them. And so that turned out to be a key sort of management condition in order to be able to even effectively ask females which of the two males they were interested in. Mm-hmm. So certainly displaying is critical, and displaying tells something to females about whether the male should even be in the running in terms of his dominance. That's all very interesting, that even the birds that were subordinate the year prior, and most likely unless the dominant bird had lost some weight or had gotten sick, the the dominant bird from the previous year had lost some weight or gotten sick, he probably would have been the dominant bird over that subordinate bird the following year as well. But the subordinate bird, because you kept them separated, now thinks that he's the dominant bird, or I guess really he is because he was by himself. So Yeah, I think they perceive that as, well, you know, no one's beating me up, so I must be pretty good. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty neat. So then from from your observations, you're saying that a subordinate bird is not going to breed a hen at all unless he's displayed or displaying for her. Yeah, I, that's your I, experience. in those trials, I never saw a hen crouch for a male that wasn't displaying. Okay. And there were some males that would display and then stop displaying, and as, as soon as they stopped, again, they were no longer in the running for, for mating. Very interesting. So you did a lot of observation of turkeys in the wild before you started your your pen experiment. Do you have an opinion on or any facts on how likely a subordinate bird is to actually breed with hens during the mating season? So from my work, I honestly couldn't uh, answer that question easily. But in talking to some other behavioral biologists who, who have observed turkeys, there's some evidence that females are sneaking around. So basically, if if they don't like the local dominant gobbler, females will actually leave the small group of females that they hang out with and actually seem to go and explore other places. Mm-hmm. We, we call that uh, mate sampling or mate searching. And typically, we don't, I think generally, people who are interested in wild turkeys don't think about turkey breeding season that way. But there's enough observations that I've been told about, about individual females, you know, one day just sort of 
disappearing and, and the researchers finding them in other places with other males that I, I think there's enough room out there for different kinds of males that appeal to maybe different preferences. Now, subordinate, you know, I think a lot of times what we consider subordinate when we're out there watching turkeys in breeding season, I think most of those may be younger males rather than older adult gobblers where one is dominant over the other. But that's sort of my impression. There is work from California and before that from Texas showing that males sometimes form display coalitions in which you get two or more than that males that display together to a female but only one of those males ever mates with the female. And in those studies, uh, they've done the DNA fingerprinting. This work was done by Alan Krakauer. Mm-hmm. And he, he showed that those males are at least as related to one another as we would expect brothers to be. And so in that case, both males are displaying. Only one male mates with the female, but those are probably brothers. Okay. All right. That's pretty interesting. So... Correct me if I'm wrong, but you also studied how male turkeys also judge other male turkeys in determining whether or not, or I guess, to, to square off with that bird or to even try to establish dominance. Did you not? Yeah, so I was interested in whether those features that we see on turkeys that, you know, I'm calling ornaments, but they may not be for females at all, right? They could be signals of male quality to other males. You know, there's always a risk of injury during a a physical contest to combat between males. And so it makes sense for males to assess the strength of another male, the dominance of another male, its health. And probably you don't want to pick a fight with another male that you know is you're going to lose. And so I was curious to know whether the same features that females were looking at may be of interest to other males in assessing the quality of, of a competitor. And so... After those males had been isolated from one another for a year, I arranged uh, these contests for these males in which they were trained to enter an arena where they knew there would be a desired resource. So captive turkeys are obsessed with bird seed, scratch corn, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so the turkeys were basically trained to go into this room where they knew this scratch grain would be. And again, they went in there individually. And then what I did was arrange on a day after they'd been trained to to go into this room, I arranged for two turkeys to be admitted to this room at the same time and wanted to see what sort of dominance interactions they would have. And the vast majority of the birds never fought at all, not even briefly. And the few that did fight fought usually for under a minute. Mm-hmm. And the best predictor of who became the dominant bird in that scenario um, was their snood length. And so male turkeys, I thought, might be assessing other males based on their snood length, just like the females are. And so I repeated using those decoys. In this case, I used only one decoy. And uh, uh, I'm sorry, I used two decoys, again, side by side, one with a long snood, one with a short snood. And I put the scratch corn in front of those two decoys and then admitted a turkey to the the room. And uh, almost all the males ate the corn in front of the shorter snooted decoy and didn't dare take the corn from the longer snooted decoy. And so it seemed as though males were keying in on the same feature that females were in terms of assessing the quality or potential threat of a particular individual turkey. Is it reasonable to say that the snood length on a turkey and the width of their skull cap is related to their age? Yeah, so the studies I did in captivity, those males were all the same age. And so basically I controlled for that age factor. In the wild, when I I sampled wild males, so I, I, I trapped free-living males, and I also went to hunter check stations in Florida, and when hunters brought in their turkeys, I asked whether I could take some measurements and collect some samples. And so I had this data set of how those ornaments correlated with the male body size, the condition of the male given the size of its body, and also its parasite load. Mm -hmm. And in that case, males were all different ages. And, you know, we could age the male with some accuracy based on the spur length. And clearly, older males grow longer snoods based on that data set. What I don't have in the wild 
is a male captured year after year as he got older to show that his snood grows longer as he grows older. Right. Because another explanation for my hunter-killed and live-captured birds for that pattern of longer snoods and older males is maybe males with long snoods had them when they were all already younger, and those were the only males to survive to an older age. And so when I looked at the data, I found that old males had longer snoods, but in fact, they always had longer snoods. And in fact, it was an indicator of their longevity, even when they were a year or two old. And so we don't know that. We know that older males typically have longer snoods, but we don't know that the snood continues to grow as the male gets older. Okay. You also found a correlation between snood length and the overall health of that bird with mainly being parasites. Is that true as well? Yeah, that's correct. So again, you have to control for age because as males get older, they've had a longer time to accumulate parasites, Mm -hmm. right? So because turkeys get, well, there's 111 different documented parasites that that, uh, wild turkeys can get. And there's probably more than that. And some of them, they just get by foraging. Uh, other ones they get because they're transmitted by insects, mosquitoes, or biting midges. Right. So there's a number of different ways you can accumulate parasites. And if you've been alive longer, you, you're exposed to more of those things. But if you control for age, then males who have longer snoods are males with fewer parasites. And it it seems as though the snood length is then a predictor of the male's parasite exposure and probably his resistance to infection by those parasites. Of the parasites I measured, though, only one showed a strong correlation with snood length, and those were coccidia. Coccidia are single-celled protozoan parasites that infect the lining of the intestine. If people have ever raised chickens or any poultry, it's a common problem to have coccidia, especially killing young birds. Mm-hmm. Coccidia is also a problem in puppies and people who raise rabbits, but it also occurs naturally in, in wild populations. And so I showed that after controlling for age, the, the males with the shortest snoods had in some cases thousands times more parasites than the males with, with long snoods specifically these coccidia parasites. That's interesting. And since then, I've done an infection experiment where in captivity, I raised some males with coccidia and medicated some males so they wouldn't have coccidia. And that experiment confirmed what I saw in the wild. And that is, if you've been exposed to coccidia as a wild turkey male, you're going to grow a shorter snood. Wow, that's amazing. Was there any relation at all in the parasitic birds and the width of their skull cap? Not specifically, but in all of these studies, skull cap is really hard to separate from snood length. So usually if males have really long snoods, they also have really wide skull caps. And you've probably seen this when males are are strutting that that blue, light blue skull cap actually forms almost like a brow over Mm -hmm. the eye. It looks swollen. And Uh, So when the male is in your hand, when you're measuring it, it doesn't have that sort of swelling size to it. So so the measurement we're taking is a really kind of static measurement. So, but almost always though, the snood is a far stronger predictor of parasite load or mate choice than, than its linkage to the skull cap. All right. So you've done a lot of testing and experimenting with parasites and wild turkeys whether it was in this study, because you you were able to control the population a good bit there in the pen while you, while you were conducting that study for your PhD, whether it was in this study or in any of your other studies, have you noticed any correlation between parasites that a bird may have and their effect on spur length or beard length in a wild turkey? The spur length and beard length are really interesting characteristics of the turkeys that are, of course, important to hunters. Both of those tend to be longer in older birds in the wild, Mm -hmm. but they don't seem to be affected by parasitism. And that has always puzzled me. With the captive birds, the the beard length is a little bit tricky because the beard length can be affected by their captive environments. Some males will wear down their beard more than others. Yeah. 
So, but even in the wild birds that I trapped or the hunter kill birds that I measured, there wasn't a correlation with beard length and parasite load. For the spur length, again, since we used spur as an indicator of age, we certainly did see that longer spurs meant more parasites, but I, I don't think in that case the correlation between parasite and spur length meant anything other than those males were older and had accumulated you know, more parasites. There was a study done in Arkansas in the uh, Washita Mountains in which they looked at the asymmetry of spur lengths. So sometimes males will have a left spur that's shorter or longer than the right spur. Mm -hmm. And they found that in habitats that were of poorer quality for turkeys, they found more asymmetry of the male spurs. So their spurs were more lopsided from uh, left and right sides. I looked at asymmetry in the captive mate choice trials, but it it wasn't very asymmetrical and it was never correlated with with female choice. So I I don't know if if females are paying attention to that per se, but there wasn't really much variation in my captive birds for that trait. So I can't really say whether it was even noticeable to turkey hens. Yeah, since all of yours were were the same age in your captive birds, they probably all had very similar spur lengths, didn't they? They did, and they were, they didn't have much left-to-right asymmetry. They weren't very lopsided either, and they were fairly well-fed, right? So that, that's another factor is, is that habitat study showed, you know, a poor habitats resulted in more asymmetrical and uh, spurs, and, and so the conditions in captivity really didn't sort of mimic that at all. Yeah, okay. Essentially, everyone lived in a good habitat, right? So Absolutely. They were getting yeah. fed the best of the best. They were, yes. No stress in looking for food or water or having to worry about predators. That's not a bad life. I guess. Sounds a little boring, actually. <laughs> uh, says the man who gets to go home and sleep in a bed with the doors locked and gets a square meal and bottled water every time he, he needs one. <laughs> most most of the time. Most of the time. Uh, too funny. Now, in your study that you did at the University of Florida for your PhD, did you also look at or try to determine the purpose of unfeathered head of the wild turkey? You're right. That, that was part of my uh, dissertation research, and that was sort of answering a related question. Uh, most of the time when we see brightly colored structures on birds, we assume it has something to do with reproductive behavior, either attracting a mate or repelling a competitor. But I thought it was so distinctive that their their heads are unfeathered, right? Even if you look at their closest relatives, uh, pheasants or grouse, they may have sort of wattles or combs, but they still have a feathered head and neck. And there are a few exceptions to that. And, you know, the only sort of other big birds that we can think of that have unfeathered heads and necks would would be vultures. Mm -hmm. And so I was really interested in, other than mate choice or competition with males, what other purpose could those unfeathered heads have? And as I looked through the literature, I realized that there might be a purpose in terms of helping the bird dissipate body heat. And for especially for big birds, when they're very active, they may generate more heat internally than is good for them, and they need some way of dissipating it. Birds don't sweat, so they can't get rid of the heat that way. They have a thick layer of feathers on the rest of their body, so they're really pretty well insulated. Mm-hmm. And so I wondered whether the head could be important for that purpose. And so I was able to do a study then in which the birds were placed into environmental chambers in, at either cold temperatures, room temperature, or a hot temperature. And these were all temperatures that could occur in North Florida where I did this work. And so they were uh, naturally occurring temperatures that were being mimicked in the laboratory. And I insulated the heads of the males. So I figured out how much insulation, if they were feathered, how much insulation would be on their heads. And then I mimicked that to see whether it would affect their ability to regulate their body temperature. And at cold temperatures, there was no difference in having their head insulated or not insulated. And I think that's because when turkeys are cold, they tuck their heads under their feathers. Oh, I should say that these studies were done at night. And the reason they're done at night is 
because when you measure metabolism of any animal, you have to measure it during their resting phase. And so that, that's why the work was done at nighttime. Okay. And so these turkeys in the dark in this environmental chamber with their head insulated, if it got cold in there, they would just tuck their head under their back feathers. And so I think that's a normal thing for these birds to do. So they're not losing much heat in that cold weather. But at the really hot temperatures, it was clear that the turkeys were having trouble maintaining a, a proper, proper body temperature. And if you insulated their heads, their body temperatures rose quite quickly. And in fact, in a few cases, I pulled the turkey out early because I was concerned about its well-being in the chamber. And it's clear that these turkeys at the environmental chamber was, was about 92 degrees and uh, Fahrenheit. And mm -hmm. if their heads were insulated, even in this resting phase where they're not physically active, their body temperature increases uh, several degrees within just two hours. And so it's, it's really, it, I think this unfeathered head and neck, especially for males, because they're so much bigger than females, is really critical during late spring when temperatures may be warm and males are engaged in a lot of activity, you know, between fighting and displaying to hens, they're generating a lot of muscular body heat. And at warm temperatures, it's hard to dump that heat to the environment and get rid of it. And if their heads were feathered, I, I don't think they'd be able to. Yeah, but it makes perfectly good sense that that would be a, a way for them to dissipate heat. And we have the benefit of looking at your or knowing your results after the study. So, you know, it's easy for us to look back and, and say, oh, yeah, well, that, that, that makes perfectly good sense. But they're, the wild turkey is so adaptable to different environments and different climates. And, you know, they do well in Canada they do well in Mexico, and even what you and I were talking about before we started the recording, the oscillated does well in the jungle, where it gets extremely hot and humid. But the wintertime, the, the feathers are such a great insulator of the body that, you know, they, and they're awake during the day, and they've got a way to stay active and, and keep their body temperature up. So, you know, it, it just doesn't seem like it would be too terrible a thing to be bald-headed in the winter if you were a wild turkey versus... Yeah, but you, you've probably seen the males um, during the breeding season. If the mosquitoes come out, um, having that bald head is, you know, prime for mosquitoes to, to feed on the bird. Mm -hmm. And and I've seen males sort of interrupt their strutting in order to rub their head onto their feathers to try to dislodge mosquitoes that are biting them. And so, yeah, there's a benefit in terms of heat dissipation, but and you get to have those colorful ornaments that that females seem to be interested in. But I think there, you know, there's also costs, and that the very parasites we were talking about right. that may harm males might be more likely to be transmitted because they have a naked head. True. So for all these things, there's you know costs and benefits. I'm really interested in in how our turkeys might do if uh, if climate warms and this will create range further into Canada potentially that they they can take advantage of but what will happen in the southern areas of their distribution mm -hmm. um how will they respond to these sorts of increases in temperature? You know, their major limiting factor for going into Canada is the, the snow depth in the winter. Right. And it's not the cold per se. It's their ability to find food, uh, access food that's below that snow. And so if the climate warms, there might be less snow up there. And so they may expand that way. But at the southern end of their distribution, yeah, what will happen to them? We do know that for domestic turkeys, in the old days when turkeys were raised outside, we do know that male fertility would drop as temperature increased. And so these males don't want to be hot. It's not good for their mating success. I, I think it's harder for them to display. It's harder for them to maybe even produce sperm. And so I'm really interested to see over time what, what happens with our turkey populations as the climate warms. Yeah, it's definitely affecting the mating season in some shape, form, or fashion, because it, it, at least my experience and what I'm seeing is that years ago, we had a pretty much a, a two-week period where breeding activity was seemed to be highest and gobbling activity seemed to be highest. And now it seems to be spread over a longer period of time that there are hens that seem to come in 
and be receptive to breeding well before others do. So, you know, I, I don't know what, and I know the science says it's the amount of daylight that we get, but I think as temperatures warm in the spring, I think we are getting more daylight on those days. And so if we're getting warmer temperatures in February and early March in the southeast, then it's probably safe to say we're getting more bright sunny days in February and March. So, you know, that could be leading them to to starting their breeding cycle a little bit earlier. But I don't know, there's a lot of research for you and your colleagues to be doing these days with the changes that we've got going on, whether it's created by man or created by something else. But we're, uh, I think we all have to admit that temperatures are getting warmer. This, there's no dis, no disputing a thermometer. So well, and I and I think that we're going to have to keep an eye on um, our wildlife and see how they're responding and make sure that we change so that they can be successful as well. If you want to keep the resource around, right, it, it's not necessarily going to be the way it was in the past, and so it might be necessary to change the way we manage or protect these species. So, yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. Yeah, I agree with you as well that that we do have to manage those, and, and that's part of it. And I think that we hunters need to be open to the fact that things are going to change, and we are seeing them change in certain states like New York and even in Mississippi, you know, and, and we're seeing things change in, I believe, Missouri reduced the number of, turkeys that, that they're going to allow to be taken in the fall in, in certain areas. I, I may be wrong about that. I'm, I know I'm probably getting Missouri confused with another state, but, you know, so many states are experiencing population declines in wild turkeys, and so they're making changes. But, you know, we can't look at that being hunters as saying that's a bad thing because these biologists and our conservation officials are trying to preserve and conserve this resource for us in the future, and and that's part of it. So we need to be more accepting of that. Yeah, I agree. I I think that the other thing to keep in mind, and I I hope that my work demonstrates, is that we can't just focus on exactly how to make sure there are more turkeys to hunt. I think we also have to ask, what, what do we still not know about this bird? And, you know, all those years ago when I started my doctor work, I was just really surprised that no one could answer the question, so what's that snood for? Like, why mm-hmm. why do they have caruncles? You know, the beard, I mean, it's such an unusual structure. Hardly any other birds have anything equivalent. So I, I think the turkey, as much as we've studied it, a lot of that work is focused on management, which of course is important, right? That's what helped bring the turkey back from the, the brink of extinction. Mm-hmm. But I think still there's lots of really interesting questions to ask about the the animal itself. I didn't mention that some of the work we did showed that the traits that females are looking at in, in male wild turkeys have genetic links to the immune system. And so those those males with longer snoods are at their immune genes, they, they have particular patterns that we don't see in the males with the shorter snoods. And so, so we think when previously I said, you know, all females are getting from a male are these genes, so they better get good ones. We at least have some evidence that that's actually true, that we can actually find specific immune genes associated with longer snoods. And, you know, who would have thought that, right? All those years ago, I, I I didn't think that I would actually discover all these really interesting things about the turkey. And so I've been, I consider myself really lucky to have become, you know, the turkey mate choice guy, that person I didn't want to be all those years ago. (laughs) And I've also been lucky to be funded. And so much of my work in the past few years was funded by the National Science Foundation, which is America's source of funding for interesting scientific questions, not necessarily applied to any particular problem. And and then recently I've also had some, some support from the University of Mississippi from the dean's office to look further into those genetic questions. And so I'm I'm collaborating. I'm not a geneticist, but I'm collaborating with some colleagues actually back at the University of Florida and at LSU or Louisiana State University who are geneticists. And we're trying to explore now using some of these newer genetic techniques 
yeah, what is the genetic basis for these differences between amongst males and and actually also among amongst females as well in terms of parasite resistance and and ornamentation. So it's an exciting time to be any kind of biologist because of the new things we're discovering, these new techniques. And I'm really looking forward to doing more of this kind of work. Yeah. Well, I know that I appreciate the research that you've done and what you're doing still today. And I know that the vast majority of people listening to this show appreciate that as well because of what you said. There's still so much to learn about, about the bird. And the more we can learn, the better we can manage, the better we can hunt, the better we appreciate the bird as well. Because I know, at least personally speaking, and I've spoken to a lot of the listeners of this show we just absolutely love wild turkeys and you know we appreciate them for what they are and the beauty in them whereas people who don't hunt them look at them and go oh my gosh that's the ugliest bird ever and it absolutely is not (laughs) but i wouldn't say that all those people feel that way i'd say it's about split 50 50. there are a lot of people that that don't hunt or that are really fascinated now as turkeys have have really come back and in some places you know they're found in suburbia um Mm -hmm. when people find out that i know something about the behavior of turkeys sometimes i find these people who are as obsessed you know as as turkey hunters are and have all sorts of questions i I had one person tell tell me that they really want to know what turkeys are thinking when you know they're interacting in a flock and uh, he he described them as uh, being equivalent to like a group of chimpanzees. Now, I wouldn't go that far in terms of, you know, socially what's going right. on. But there's a, there is a lot of interesting stuff. And, and, you know, people who are willing to pay attention to nature, to witness nature over seasons, over time, you know, pay attention to detail. There's, there's so many cool things about turkeys and, and other creatures out there if we take the time to notice. Very true. Very well said. Okay, so I'll be remiss if I don't ask this question. What are the caramels for, other than display for the hens? Is that yeah, so it? That's a that's a really good question because variation caramel number was was not a significant predictor of, of female choice in most of these studies, and yet males vary a lot. They also vary on either side. Of their neck, so you can have very different numbers of caruncles on on one side versus the other. I, so I don't know for those side caruncles. For the caruncles at the lower part of the neck, the really big red ones, those I'm pretty sure are are one of the structures that's important in in dissipating the heat. Okay. But I think there might be more to that. You know, they become red because blood flows into them. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a great way to get your blood to your periphery, right, to, to, to get heat out to the edge of your body. But I've seen some odd things where males are displaying to hens, and all of a sudden those caruncles will go white. They'll actually, mm-hmm. you know, sort of bleach out in color. So the male has restricted blood flow all of a sudden. And so the, the coloration still is one of the things that uh, I really wonder about. I, I would love to find a way to, to work on that. The problem is, is how do you, you know, it's something that a turkey can change in an instant. And and as a scientist, that's really hard to sort of document and monitor and, and ideally experiment in some way. So, yeah, do I really know what the chronicles are for? No. Do I know what the color changes are for? No, I don't know that either. And, and you know, I'm not retired yet. I, I still have a lot of things I could do. <laughs> I like your attitude. I like your approach on that. Yeah, that, you're right. It would be so hard to measure and the why the colors change. What is it that makes them change? And blood flow is the obvious, I think, is the first thing that we turn to. But it could be something different. We don't know. And so, you know, the same body part can change from red to white to blue to flesh Mm -hmm. color. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes even a little bit of purple in there, which Mm -hmm. I assume is the blue and the red getting together. But, yeah, it's it's really amazing. Yeah, awesome. Well, I can't tell you how much I appreciate this. I I literally think I could stay on the phone with you for the rest of the afternoon and and pick your brain. I I know you've got work you need to do that is going to help us down the line, and and I'm I'm sure you've got a a research project or two that that you want to be working on. But 
I would love to get you on and talk a little bit about the oscillated at some point in the not too distant future. So I appreciate you agreeing to come on and do another interview there. And when we do that interview, I'm going to let you just kind of talk and I'm going to pick your brain as we go along because it's a bird that I don't know very much about at all. So, well, Andy, almost nobody knows anything about them. And so, yeah, I can tell you what we think we know about them. And uh, they're my new obsession. So I'd love to talk about the oscillated turkey. Fantastic. Well, I know there's a lot of people listening to this show that has an oscillated on the bucket list and would love to learn more about the animal before they actually go out to pursue it because it just makes the opportunity of taking one of those animals that, that much more enjoyable when you can truly appreciate what it is that that bird is or what it does and all that fun stuff. So I appreciate that opportunity and we'll definitely get a time on the calendar here in the not too distant future to do that. So for right now, I do greatly appreciate you coming on the show and and let me pick your brain about your doctoral thesis that you did. And I'm sure that you've got some more studies that you've got going on that I could pick your brain about as well. So we may discuss some of those. I may just have to turn the show over to you and let you just talk into a microphone for a few hours and talk about some of the stuff you're doing because I know we could <laughs> we could all learn a great deal from from what you've learned in your studies. So, thank you. Well, I appreciate your interest. I, you know, I've been working with turkey hunters for years, uh, all the way back to that doctoral work. I appreciate the passion. You know, I. I I love the beast for a different reason, but mm-hmm. turkey hunters are so knowledgeable. And, it, you know, if we're going to manage the resource, if we're going to protect the resource, then that sort of passion and interest and willingness to exchange information, you know, is, is just so critical. And I, and I think that's what's important about your show as well, is you really get people to talk about these different aspects of the species that we're all really interested in. Well, thank you. And and that's that's part of it. I mean, I'm I'm fascinated by them. So, you know, of course, I want to learn as much as I can. And I've got a an outlet to do that. And so many people that listen to the show are, are passionate about them and want to learn as much as they can as well. And so it's gone from there. And, you know, there's so much more about this animal that we can talk about. And somebody has asked me, you know, not too long ago, aren't you going to run out of stuff to talk about with wild turkeys? I don't think so. (laughs) I don't think so, whether it's hunting them or just learning more about the bird, period. There's plenty to talk about. So uh, thanks to guys like you, I think that topic will always be available for us to discuss, and we're continuing to learn more and more about them. So good deal. Dr. Buckholz, thank you very much, and I hope you have a great afternoon and look forward to having you on the show and talking to you again soon about the bird that we love to watch and study and learn about. Thanks, Andy. It's been my pleasure. All right. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Goodbye. All right. I think there is some great information in that interview that can help us this coming spring with maybe choosing a strutter decoy and knowing a little bit more about subordinate birds and they're looking for love in all the wrong places from those hens that have slipped away from their flock and the dominant tom. And I also think that there is just some great info about the birds that we love to watch, that we admire, we love to hunt, and like I did tonight, have for dinner. You know, I believe that God's creation is an amazing thing and that when we learn more and more about how it all works and fits together, then that's when we truly start to develop a greater appreciation for what he's given us. And I think this episode, when you look at all of the things that work together between a male wild turkey and a female wild turkey in order for them to get together, for one to choose the other and breed and keep that population going, it's just really an amazing thing how all those pieces of the puzzle do come together. So that's all that I've got for you guys today. But here's the deal. I need you to help a brother out. If you learned one thing today, then please, in your podcast player, there is a share button. Share the link to today's episode in your podcast player app and share it with a hunting buddy. Whether that hunting buddy is a turkey hunter or not, doesn't matter. If you will share that with your hunting buddy, I would greatly appreciate that. And that's it. So thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. I know that you have choices. I appreciate you spending your time with us. I hope you have a wonderful week and 
I look forward to seeing you again next week. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the Turkey Hunter podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please go on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. And make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe for free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews to help you have a more successful turkey season. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes on hunting afternoon birds, how to film your hunt, and the breeding cycle of hens, as well as some guest interviews. Thanks again for listening. We know your time is valuable, and we appreciate you sharing some of it with us. See you next week.